good. Let's get into God's word because we're going to talk about 1 John. I know you're not supposed to have favorites, but I still do, and Jesus still loves me. And one of my favorite books in the Bible, my favorite book in the Bible is 1 John. This guy, John, I don't know if he would feel the same way, but I think that he and I would be friends, right? In the Gospel of John and in the Gospels, there's this guy who was known as a son of thunder. Like, he was a passionate dude. Like, there are some people that didn't uh, respond to Jesus the way he thought they should have, and he was like, okay, God just torched the town, right? I mean, that's, he's a passionate dude, right? And yet he was also known as the apostle of love. Like, God just transforms this guy's life, Right? Now, here's an amazing guy, and, and this is one of the letters that he writes to the church. He became youngest apostles in his uh, own gospel. He, he writes that he is the apostle that, or the disciple that Jesus loved. It wasn't an issue of pride. It was humility. He was just so unbelievable. Like, it's like God loves me. <laughs> a man that was marked by Christ. He was the one that lived outlived all the other apostles. All the rest of them got martyred. They tried to martyr John, but he was too stubborn to die, and so they stuck him on an island, and then God still spoke to him there. It's pretty awesome. He was an amazing individual. And he writes this, this book, this letter, 1 John, to the churches that he, that he spent his life pouring into. And, and, uh, and it was around the year of right, the, eight, the late 80s, early 90s, first century when he pens this. This is near the end of his life. And he had already written probably the Gospel of John, and he had gotten it out there. And, and, uh, and the church is, uh, he's, he's old, and, and the church is facing persecution now, like really bad persecution. They're killing Christians. Uh, the, the Jews are, are, are stoning Christians, that, that, uh, that they were, um, those that didn't accept their Messiah. There was wars going on between villages and things like this. There was the Messianic Jews that were trying to explain things. They're, it was causing division. And then there was the, the Romans, the Gentiles, were, were, were persecuting the Christians because they said, listen, you're saying that there's this King Jesus and there's only, there's only this King Emperor uh, Nero or Rome, of, of, of Rome and, and the Emperor, and they're supposed to worship him and... And so they started persecuting Christians, and it was a hard time to be a Christian. And John was looking at all of this, and, and in the midst of, of the difficulties of the faith, and, as it was, and he knew that he was the last of the apostles, and he knew he wasn't going to live much longer. He's going to pass the torch, and he wants to make sure the church is healthy. But unfortunately, the church wasn't completely healthy. There was some bad doctrine that was starting to, to seep its way into the church, and and there were people that were coming in and giving like, their ideas about what faith should be instead of sticking with what John knew that it was, the truth that God had given. You know, most people don't think that they can be um, tricked, right? You're not going to be the victim of fraud. Most people think that, right? That's why the fraudsters count on that. I remember uh, when, we were first, uh, when I was first a youth pastor, we used to go down to Mexico every year in the border towns, and then we would help build houses and stuff like that. And then at the end of every of those trips, we would have one day, we would go into what they called the Mercado, and you'd go in, there's like a market, and you would go in, like, as the only place in my life I've ever bargained for anything, right? And I'm really bad at bargaining. Usually they'd be like, it's $5, and by the end I'm paying 7 Like, I'm just not good at that. Right? <laughs> So I went in and I wanted to buy my wife um, a, a nice necklace, right, S- something. And uh, they had the, in the Mercado, they had this, it was this little tiny, like, silver chain, uh, you know, necklace on there. And I thought, okay, this is what I will get. So I started bargaining for it and all of this. And the person there told me, oh, it's legit, it's silver, all that kind of stuff. It had a little stamp on there to let you know it's sterling silver, all of that, everything was right. So I go and I buy it. And then I come home and Amy starts wearing it and all of a sudden her skin starts turning green and I thought, oh, no, I'm killing my wife. Well, <laughs> it wasn't sterling silver. 
I was tricked. I felt like such a fool. <laughs> right? I honestly believe that this, what I had purchased was genuine and right and it was this great gift and it turned out to be trash. Well, we have an enemy of our souls that wants to trick us. There's a genuine faith. There's a genuine gospel that can save us. It can transform lives and it can, it can turn us from dark to light. It's an amazing thing. But he's really good at deceiving. He's really good. And bad doctrine could get its way into the church and it deceives people where they think they have what's genuine but they're not believing what is true anymore and it lacks the power to, to save and to transform. It is a weak gospel, an imitation. And that's what was happening in John's day. And, and the enemy does it. He poisons what is good and he tricks us just enough. And so there would be, like what Jesus even warned, there would become a time when people would, would stand before him in judgment and there would be some, he would separate on one side, he'd call the goats and he's... And they would say, hey, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all this stuff? And Jesus would say to them, I, I never knew you. You didn't have the right faith. It's important for us as Christians to have humility to, know that our, to test our faith. How do we know what we're believing is true? That's what First John is about. This is a pastor at the end of his life, an apostle, the first generation, an eyewitness of Christ, pouring out to his, his followers, Christ's followers, and saying to them, test your faith. Make sure it's genuine. Make sure that what you're believing is true, that it's a value. That's what this book is about. Now, in John's day, the lie was coming, and it started with people that had their ideas about who Jesus was, and they attacked the nature of Christ, and that continues today, doesn't it? See if this sounds familiar to you. The first attack that was happening in that day was there were people saying, oh, Jesus is really, really great, but <laughs> really, he can't, he's not God. Because they believed in the time, there was this idea that, you know, things of the, this dualism idea that, that everything of the body was evil and everything of the spirit must be good, right? And therefore, Jesus, if he came in the flesh and if he died and all that kind of stuff, then he clearly couldn't be God. That's ridiculous. And so he may have had some really good things to teach, but he was just really just a man. A really a smart guy, probably a really good prophet or a great teacher or a, a moralist, but they said, nah, he can't be God. And they started rejecting Christ's deity, which means they rejected his authority. Why obey some other guy? There was the other side of that coin. There were other peoples who believed at the start of that dualism idea, which is certainly not from God, who said that things of the flesh are evil and things of the spirit must be good. So they, they believed that beginning lie, and they went to the other side, and they said, wait a second, no. Jesus was God, absolutely. Did all these miracles, right? Clearly God. But he couldn't have been in the flesh. He can't be a man. How is it possible for God to be a man? That would be stupid. That's what they would say. He looked like a man. But if God wasn't a man, then he couldn't have died. He couldn't have died for our sins. And where's the hope in that? And if he didn't die, he couldn't resurrect. And that's the foundation of our faith. It was causing a lot of Christians to doubt then not the authority of God. That one was causing them to doubt the authenticity of God. Was he real? Right? Was, was he say, was, was he really loving? Or did God just put on the show to trick people? And you can read the, the old ancients, the mystics and whatnot, where they started going and writing about this debate that was going on in the early church. And John writes a letter to the early church and he says, listen, there's, there is truth and he gives us a test so we know what, that we're believing what is right and true, that what we have is genuine. And just like them, 
I imagine most of us, including myself, think I won't be deluded. I know truth when I feel it. But we have to have the humility and let's test our faith. And that's what this is about. Now, John, he's a simple guy. He was a fisherman, right? God called him out of obscurity. He was a fisherman. He was just a simple guy. Now, some people say John couldn't have written these things because he wrote such high-minded things. But I'll tell you, when I was in electrical work, there was this plumber that I worked with. The guy was a genius, right? He had a lot of ideas and thoughts and stuff. Just because you work in a blue-collar job does not mean that you are simple-minded. And John was certainly not just simple-minded. He was incredibly intelligent. But he also speaks with a plainness that is amazing. And one of the reasons maybe he speaks to me is because he's just so simple. I mean, he talks about complex ideas, but just... So simple. In, in the Gospel of John and the writings of John and First John and all this, you're going to notice that he speaks of things in these, these very simple terms, terms like this, like light and dark. Right? That, there's, that there, is, there is light and is good and is pure, and there is darkness and is wickedness. And, and, and really with John, there's not any middle ground. There's not the gray. You're either in the light or you're in the dark, and it's best for us to know which we're in. John talks about things such as truth and error. Either something's true or it's not. I like the simplicity of that. And I think one of the great uh, lies of our age is that some things are like there's such a thing as half-truth. If it's not true, it's not true. And John helps us to say, listen, don't pin your eternity and your hope and your life and everything on something that's partially true. Believe what's true. Live according to that. And he gives us tests to be able to find out which is which. He talks in terms of things like life and death. I have really never come across a half-dead person. You're living or you're not. And John talks about this not just in our body, but our soul. He says, are you alive or are you dead? And the ministry of Christ was to bring people from death to life, not from death to zombieage in, in the kingdom, right? Like, we're not like the walking, living dead. Like, either dead or alive. He takes people from death to life. From evil and righteousness, these two opposing things, John has the audacity to say that there's such a thing as right and wrong. Because God says that there is right and there is a standard. And if it's not on the standard, then it is wrong. John helps us, I think, put some clarity to our life. This world is so confusing, isn't it? Don't you have like, aren't you tired of all the ideas that are out there, like everybody telling you, this is the way reality works, right? And then they all like disagree with each other? How do you know what voice to listen to? How do you know which one's right? Because they can't all be right. That's what John is talking about. You know what? This is not a new idea, is it? Like, this is something that apparently has been around for a very long time. And so God gives us this apostle and this letter to help us to see truth for what it is, to test our faith, and to walk in that truth. The structure of this letter, of the first John, is very difficult. It's... uh, John doesn't write in, a, in just this linear fashion where he writes down, like, this is point A and this is point B and all that. No, no. He, he talks about life in terms of it's just all integrated. There are these themes of light and dark and truth and, and error and, and, and life and death and all of this that are they're kind of woven in between each other all the way throughout this book, right? And I think that's amazing for us because I think oftentimes as Christians, we want to segregate our faith, right? We want to have a faithful day, and then we want to have a grace-filled day. But I'll tell you, there's, our God says, you know, John even shows about that these things aren't separate. 
Light and love, righteousness and truth, and, and grace and mercy actually can coexist in the same space at the same time. In fact, they did in the person of Jesus. And then he teaches us how to follow that. It's an amazing thing. It teaches us how to have a holistic faith. A faith that doesn't end on, on Saturday you know, night and then, you know, or Sunday morning. It's a faith that continues and endures and grows. But with that said, I have to preach through this, so I'm going to give us some structure, so that way you know what we're going to be talking about. So here's a suggested outline of how I go through it, and it's going to be thematic. Some of the big pictures, as John kind of interweaves these ideas together, there are going to be some things that kind of stick out more than others, right? But these are not just like separate from each other. I want to make that very clear. But the first one is that John talks about, the first thing is to be real. It's a test of authority. The very first thing we need to test in our faith is, is does it have the authority to tell us what to do, right? Uh, is this a, a good idea, a philosophy of life, or is there a God that we obey? And he goes back and he says, listen, Jesus is true. That's the test of authority. If Jesus is not true, then really the Scripture has no authority in our life. The Christianity has no authority to really direct how we live or what we're to do, right? But it also doesn't have any power to save us. So he starts with this, the test of authority, and that's what we'll be talking about today. In a couple weeks, we're going to go to this one. The next one is to be together. And this was the test of fellowship, right? If you are in Christ, right, if, if, if there is this authority that God has, right, and we belong to him, there's supposed to be a test to say, how do we love one another, right? And so he helps us through that, and, and really he focuses on this theme in that, is that God is light. The reason that we have fellowship is not because you have light, that you are perfect, or the other person's perfect, because we all know that none of us are perfect, and if we try as a church to get together based upon the perfection or how much I like those people or how much, you know, how light they are, we're, every church will split, right? N- I mean, think about that. None of us are absolutely perfect. And if you think you are, talk to your best friend or your spouse or your kids, right? The reason we have fellowship has nothing to do with us, but it has to do with God and his nature, and he develops that thought. So we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. And the last one is to belong. And this one really has to do with are we even in the kingdom? Are you even a Christian? Because there are a lot of people who think that they are. They, they call themselves Christians, but actually they're believing a gospel that's not the gospel. And it doesn't have the power to save. And the first, last thing he says, listen, that we can love one another all we want to, but we really need to make sure that we belong, that we are in God's family. Because you're either in his family or you're not. And if you're in his family, you are in his family. Right? And there are people that are in his family that are acting like they're not. And there are people that are outside of the family who think they are. And there's an invitation for them to be, but they still, they still live on the outside. And so he gives us a test of sonship or of relationship. And you see that through the last you know, three chapters, three, three, four, and five. And then really at that, he develops this idea, and really the, the anchoring of it is that God is love. The reason that we are in God's family is God is a God of love. How awesome is that? It's not just his righteousness. It's not just his wrath. It's, not, it's that if God's love. And that's where our relationship with him is, is rooted in. So those are the, that's the suggested outline. Now, next week we're going to talk about there are five things that, that uh, John writes that we might have. That's why he says that he wrote the book. And so we're going to focus on those. There's be five things. I said be mighty because there's five mites that you might have. Right? So we'll talk about that next week, why we would have this. But there's the outline. So we're going to go through it that way. Now, our memory verse today comes to us from 1 John 1.3. We like to memorize the book, the Bible, every week, a little passage in there. This comes to us from today's passage, going to be there, 1-3. And John writes, We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you may also have fellowship with us. Right? And so the reason we're going to memorize that is because it really summarizes, I think, the heart of this book. 
And think about what he's saying. We proclaim. A proclamation is not something you do quietly, is it? Like, I'm proclaiming something. No, you're whispering. A proclamation is, I'm proud about this. I want people to know. And at this time, when John was old, right, when the church was under attack, when there was a consequence to being a Christian, John says, even yet still, there is a proclamation. This is something the world needs to have, needs to hear. And he's bold about it, right? Proclaim to you. And he's not proclaiming secondhand faith. What we have seen and heard. Right? This is not hearsay faith. And the reason he does, this is, you see this so much through the book, is that you may also have fellowship with us. The purpose of, of the doctrine of, of, this, of this proclamation is not so that we can condemn the world. That we can say, oh, you don't have Jesus, therefore you're lost. It's not so that we can feel morally superior. The reason that we give this, doc, this declaration, this proclamation, is because there's a love that we have that others also may have this fellowship. To swing the gate wide and to say to everybody, come. And that's an issue of the heart, isn't it? And so in this passage we're going to memorize, we have, I think, a lot of the heart of 1 John, so we can begin carrying that with us as we go through and start studying this. So here we go. This is how we do it. If you're new with us, we just repeat it together. You'll see the letters kind of glow or whatever, and then eventually we read it a few times, and then we'll test ourselves with just the letters, and then it's amazing how that locks in your memory so fast. So you'll be amazed. Here we go. Say along with me. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. First John 1, 3. Awesome. But don't just say it. Think about what you're saying. Right? Let God do that work in your heart as you begin to think about how does this apply into my life. It's good stuff. All right. If you have your Bible, let's open it up. First John um, is here near the back. First John uh, is a, not the Gospel of John. Sometimes people get them confused, especially me when I'm doing memory verses. Right? But they're not the same. Um, so it's near the back, page 855. If you need a Bible, we've got lots of them in the back on that bookshelf. If you just don't have a Bible, keep it. Our gift to you. Um, we want everyone to have God's word. Now, as you're turning there, you'll notice that it's very, very far in the end. Let me go real quickly how the Bible is set up if you wonder why First John is so far back there. I was a Christian for like over a decade before somebody told me how the Bible's put together. First part is the Old Testament, right? And so that has to do basically before Jesus came, okay? And so you can read through that. I'm not going to talk about that right now, but it's, it's important, the Old Testament. It's, now, the second part, which is like the last quarter of the Bible, is the New Testament. That's from when Jesus came, right? It has to do with the New Covenant, how we work with God now. The first four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are four Gospels. Those are the four stories of Jesus by eyewitness, or people that were there or knew. And actually, Luke uh, did a lot of interviews and kind of figured it out, right? Matthew, Mark, and Luke are really, really similar, okay? So they're called synoptics. So you read the those three, like, all in a row. You're like, didn't I read that before? Probably, right? Most of those are in there. Now, John was different. John is just a cool dude. And so John wrote... Uh, a lot of different stuff that wasn't included in the synoptics. Not contradictory stuff, just different. So he's kind of set apart at the very end. Then there's the book of Acts. Acts is just basically the second part of the Gospel of Luke. Because Luke wrote so much he ran out of scroll, got a new scroll, and then kept writing. Right? Because he's got a new scroll. Right? So that's what we have. And really the Gospel of Luke goes up to when Jesus was resurrected. Then we have Acts. It starts with the beginning of the church when Jesus ascends and the Holy Spirit comes. And then how the church grew. That's what we get. Then after that... Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote a lot of letters, okay? And so we have those letters that he has to the church, and those are named 
by the city that Paul sent them to, because that's much more fun to say Romans than it is to say First Paul, right? So that's what we have. So he's got all these letters that are named to who they have, and they're ordered this way, from longest to shortest. So if you want to say, I want to write a, read a very short letter of Paul, well, don't read Romans, because it's the longest. It's the first. At the very end of Paul's letters, he has this very short thing where he writes to not just cities, but individuals. They're called the pastoral epistles, right? So he writes to these people. There's Timothy and Titus, and, and there's a Philemon. It's, it's, he writes to these individuals about what does it mean to, to, to lead a church and to be a Christian, right? And then after that, then we have these epistles that were written by people that weren't Paul. And since they weren't written by Paul, we just name them after who they were written by. Except for Hebrews, it was probably written by a Hebrew guy, but we don't know. It's just, there was no name. So we think it might be Paul, but it's in there. And then after that, you have these other epistles that were written by like James and Peter and, and, and Jude, but also John, the same apostle that wrote the gospel. And that's why First John is way back in the back. And at the very end of the Bible, after these epistles, you have what is the last book of the Bible, Revelation, which has to do with the things of the very end. So that's how it's structured. So that's where 1 John is. It's in there. How John wrote three letters to the church, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, structured by longest to shortest. There you go. Bible College 101. All right. So hopefully that gave you time to get there. Now, we have uh, in 1 John 1.1, we read, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, with our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. Most letters in the ancient world started with this. John, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the church at Blount, right? That's how they started. John doesn't need to do that. Apparently, he knows these people pretty well, right? This is, this is a, a letter from the heart, and it's to these people, and he starts with this, not all the niceties and all the things. He said, this is something you need to get, and he starts with, who is Jesus? That which was from the beginning. Who was at the beginning? Well, John was a Jew, Right? And they had the book of Genesis. And in the beginning, we read that there was God. That which is from the beginning. He talks about who God is. All right? Which we have heard and seen and touched. John talks about this is, this is not God in figment, not just God in philosophy, not just God in theology. This is a God who showed up. We looked at him. We talk, and he uses the... the, the uh, the actual physical things like we would talk about, like the most, I would say, uh, uh, the senses that we use almost most. We looked at him. We heard him. We touched him. Right? It would be weird if he said we licked him, right? That would be, you know, you know taste of God. So he uses the ones, the, the senses that we, when we get to know somebody, we see them. This is God in reality. He says, this is firsthand knowledge. Stop listening to hearsay about Jesus and start listening to, to who, who God really is. He says, I have eyewitness testimony. It also says this, very two important things that he talks against. The very, the very first sentence is he blows up the, the two bad theologies that were destroying the church. The first one that says that God doesn't exist or that Jesus isn't God. He says, that which is from the beginning, I saw him. God became flesh. God exists and he exists in the form of a man. And I touched him, I t- right? We saw him, I heard him, he became physical. He destroys this crazy idea that God cannot be God and man and one. Like somehow God's got to fit into our brains. I think the other thing is he also says, this is the very anchor and the foundation of everything that we believe. Either it's true or it's not true, right? He's talking about God in reality. Not the God as I saw him in a cave. Not the God as he revealed himself through an angel. But God, when he showed up, this is how he revealed himself. And so he says this, 
with our hands to touch with us, this is what we proclaim to you concerning the word of life. God showed up. He's real, and we're telling you about it. And think about this. John had, at this point in his life, been beaten, right? He, uh, there's some really, uh, he'd, been, he'd been cast out of lots of different towns, stoned multiple times. Uh, he'd been, people tried to kill him all the time because of his, his proclamation. The Romans, there's a legend, and it's fairly well documented, that probably happened, that he, they tried to murder him by boiling him in oil. They turned him to a French fry, and they still couldn't kill him. He proclaims this, and even then, he would say, Jesus is alive, He's who he claimed to be. This is a proclamation. John says, I'm telling the world. And finally, Rome, Rome, who was great at killing people, can't kill John. What do they do? They stick him on an island and say, well, if you're not going to show up, we'll put you out there where no one can listen to you. And then what does he write? Revelation, right? Proclamation. I'm telling you that it's true. And why would he be so bold? John, who had, was the youngest of the disciples, had witnessed all of his best friends. Jesus himself died, right? And then he saw him rise again. And he saw all of his other friends executed for their faith and all of their families. And he saw the people that his churches that he loved. And he saw them die for their faith. And this, why would he be so bold to consider proclaiming this? Well, think about it. If you walked with Jesus, if you were there, you know, you, 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 he, John was a sensitive, spiritually sensitive guy. He was a disciple of John the Baptist when he was a young man. And he wanted deeply to see the things of God. He was... He was following John the Baptist. He was there when Jesus was baptized. When the sky opened up and and the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, landed on Christ like a dove. Whatever that means, right? He was there when when the voice from heaven spoke, this is my son, who I'm I'm pleased in. Listen to him. He was there for that. He saw it. Not only see that... He was called. Jesus said, follow me. He was there and he saw a miraculous catch of fish. He was there when Jesus went and healed people. He was there when Jesus raised people legit from the dead. Even his friend Lazarus, who was four days in a tomb, he saw him come out. He was there when Jesus cast out demons. In fact, when an army of demons that dwelled one guy, this guy there's a whole legion of demons, runs up to Jesus and surrenders without even fighting. He saw the power of the divine. He was there for all of this. He was also there when Jesus was executed. Front row, the only disciple that was brave enough to stay. He was there standing next to Jesus' mom as she wept and saw her son dying on a cross. And Jesus said, take care of her. He was there and feeling the bitterness when they took the, the body off of the cross and saw the lifeless body of God incarnate. And he was there when Christ raised and he saw the power of God. And he saw, he saw that the scars. And he saw Thomas touch them. And he ate with the risen Jesus. And he met with him. And he, he traveled with him. And he was given the commission by Jesus himself. And said, I came and I conquered. I conquered death. I conquered sin. I conquered it all. And I've given you hope. And now I've given you a purpose and a commission. Now go make disciples. If you saw all of that, and not only this, he was there when the Holy Spirit showed up at Pentecost. When they were waiting for God to, say, to do whatever he was going to do so they could go and start telling people. And the Holy Spirit showed up and the little flames of tongues. They were speaking in languages they hadn't studied. He was there participating. Right? He saw God show. He was there. When he was a leader in the church when God brought the gospel to the Gentiles. He saw God break down sin and shame and brokenness and helplessness and hurts. He was there. He saw it all. 
And he received the commission. And if you were John, would you be able to shut up? I don't care how much somebody threatens you. When you see that Jesus died and rose again, and he says, that's going to happen for you too. Don't worry about these people that can mess up your body, right? You get a new one. That's why he proclaims to you. That's why there's the proclamation. This is not just hearsay. And the thing is, it wasn't just John that had held to this. It was every one of the disciples, every one of them. They went to their deaths proclaiming the deity of Christ and forgiving those that persecuted them because of him. Every one. That's why he calls it the word of life. Jesus didn't come to bring death. Jesus is life himself. And the world has responded from the beginning by trying to squelch out life with death, right? They tried to kill Jesus. The word of life didn't work out so well. And they tried to kill the church by killing the apostles. and didn't work out so well. He's saying that there is life, and this life is going to overcome. Eyewitness, I saw him and proclaimed to you concerning the word of life. What did he proclaim about this? Well, the first thing is, what is this word of life? It reminds us of the gospel of John. Now John begins. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through Him all things were made, and without Him nothing was made that has been made. If there is any doubt that John, who was an eyewitness and a, and a follower of Jesus, who was right there, believed that Jesus wasn't God? That, that's crazy talk. John himself, right there, in the Gospel of John, talks about him being the Word, and the Word that creates all things, right? He's God. And then first John, he says he's the Word of life itself. Is the one that made this. The world was chaotic and dead, and Jesus came. God created. And Jesus isn't like we think of like our son. Like, we, uh, like there's Amy and me, and then we have Thomas, who's very separate and different. I mean, he's part of the family, but he's different. That's not how God is. There's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And yes, they're separate, and yet they're the same. And how does that work? Well, God's bigger than your brains. Aren't you glad for that? That means we couldn't invent him. But Jesus was not just came after. Jesus was creator. The creator came to save his creation. The word of life came to taste death so that we could have life. It boggles the mind. But he's saying, this is what I'm proclaiming about God himself. What did God do that was so amazing? Well, verse 2, the life appeared. Right? We have seen it and testify to it. And proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and appeared to us. Think about that. God showed up. I'm so, like, when I was looking at different faiths when I was, you know, younger and I was kind of, uh, I had rejected the idea of God and all of this and I was, you know, being confronted with, the, with science and, and the fact that naturalistic science, science without God can't explain itself. It's, it's, you need something outside of it to get it started. We just can't explain, nature can't explain nature by natural law. It doesn't work. And when I came to that point, there had to be something outside. And then I started looking at world religion. You know, one of the things I hated about world religions is they were all trust me stories. This is how, this is, some guy talked to this guy in a cave. This guy got some plates and some cool glasses to read. Trust me. Or, you know what? I was able to, I had this uh, special uh, line with, the, with the, you know, the professor, with God. And he tells me how he's supposed to interpret all these things, even though it's different than what you would normally think. Trust me. Or we have these things like, uh, there really is no God. How do you know? Trust me. Well, how do we know? Well, eventually, if you, if you are good enough, you'll join that in nirvana, which means just you're snuffed out. Well, how do we know if you're snuffed out? Who's there? Who's telling us? Trust us. Why? 
I'm so sick and tired of trust. I'm, I'm betting my eternity on this. I need something a little more. Maybe that makes me a man of little faith, but I would like to say I'm a man of reasonable faith. And he said, God showed up. I love the fact that if God exists and he created all of this, he can actually enter into it and say, here I am. The world is not waiting and wondering who God is. God showed up. We know very much who he was. And John talked to him. And this is, this is the very centerpiece of, of our faith. In fact, the Gospel of John, verse 14, John also develops this very same thought there. Just so you see, it's very consistent in where in these books this truth is. Chapter 1 and both of them, foundational to our understanding who Jesus is. And John said, The Word became flesh. And made his dwelling amongst us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is God, and yet became flesh. Jesus is man. He is human. He knows what it's like to be a person. He knows what it's like to, 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 to experience our life. And God loves us enough that he was able to somehow continue to be God, and yet also fully take on humanity. And he didn't need to do it. Because it's part to be human, isn't it? But he did. Okay, so he came, and we proclaim that to you. And then, what do we do because of that? It says, we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and appeared to us. There's a proclamation that is necessary. If you see God show up, you can't be quiet about it. Right? I mean, you were sitting in your, after church, right? You go to a restaurant, you sit down and all that kind of stuff, and right across from all of a sudden, God shows up and says, can I have this chair? You're like, why, yes, God, I suppose that you can. And he's like, are you hungry? And he said, well, I only have these crackers. The waiter hasn't gotten here. He says, don't worry about it. And he like breaks it, and then there's like plenty, and everyone in the restaurant eats, and then there's like baskets of crackers, right? And would you just like not post that on Facebook? Right? You saw it. Proclam- proclamation. God shows up. He hasn't abandoned us. The deists were wrong. Oh, praise God. God showed up. And there's a proclamation of hope, and there's a proclamation of love, and there's a proclamation of light, and, and a, a, it's a different way that can transform us. John saw it. He saw it all. And he says, this is not trust me. This was well documented, and he wasn't the only one. There were 12 others that saw the whole thing, plus there were 500 beyond that that saw Jesus after he raised at one point, right? There was plenty of people that saw this. And he said, this was not just trust me, and it started the faith. And this is so important for us to understand that the faith, Christianity, started in the very same city that murdered Jesus in just in under two months, right? Just a little over a month. In that very same city, you see thousands of people in the public coming out, even priests and rabbis and those that were leaders of the religious staff, coming in mass to be baptized. Why would they do that if Jesus didn't really raise from the dead? The most anti-Christian climate in the world is where they literally kill Jesus. And we see that the church doesn't just start there, it expands there and explodes from that point. These are the people that could walk to the tomb if Jesus was really in it, Right? These were the people that had a motivation to say, man, we killed God, right? If, if, they were, if they didn't believe that they'd killed God, then they probably wouldn't be so repentant. To see that the faith began there, and it grew so rapidly there, and it, it's a great testimony of us. That these are people that actually saw God, and they believe it. Not just trust me, look at their life, and their life will tell you a whole lot. So he proclaims to us the eternal, father, the eternal life which was with the Father and appeared to us. There's a nature in Jesus, eternal life, 
You have one life. God has eternal life, right? That God shows up, and one of the evidence of where God is is that there is life. Right? That's one of the things that he does and appears to them. And so we see that Jesus himself claims this. And a lot of people in their life, they, they want to have, they know that spiritually they're dead, right? That's why there's so many religions in the world. That's why no matter where we go in the world, even people groups that we've just contacted and all this, all of them have some type of religion. All of them have some type of morality that they try to uphold. Why? They say, all people know that there's a brokenness in here, right? That there's a need for redemption, that there is something inside. I don't want to be the way that I am, and I don't like it. I need some help. Well, Jesus came, and this is what Jesus says about himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus claims that there is life. Yeah, there's spiritual death, but he is the life, and he came. Think how amazing that is. When people say that Jesus claimed one of the great lies of our age are people that were born millennia after Jesus walked this earth and didn't walk with him and didn't listen to what he had to say, somehow think they have an idea that, oh, you know what matters is not so much that you believe who you believe in, it's the sincerity of your faith. Think how stupid that is. Did that logic work anywhere in life? Do all roads lead to Estes? No. Some roads lead to Sydney, Australia. Right? Some people are on the whole wrong continent in their faith, and you can't get there from here. Think about this. Some people say, well, it doesn't matter what I believe as long as it's sincere. Does that work anywhere else? Get audited for your taxes sometime. I sincerely believe that I paid everything I owe. But if I didn't pay everything I owe, does that sincerity help me? Go shopping for pants. I sincerely believe I'm a size two. If you're not a size two, no amount of belief is going to fit you into those jeans, right? Sincerity is great, but, it's got, but reality is more important. It's not the sincerity of our faith that saves us. It's the Savior that we have faith in. And God showed up to save us. I think it's amazing. We have to not just believe, we have to believe what is true. And if it is true, then we have to truly trust it, right? We have to live like we believe it. That's what he's talking about. And when he says that Jesus is alive, he's talking about Jesus is not just God who came to judge. There's not death in Christ. He came to save. He's the Messiah. He fulfilled everything that was promised so that we could have life. Now, verse 3, again, there's this theme, another word that we proclaim to you. You hear that word a lot, right? The Christian life cannot be silent, even when things are difficult. How many times have you read, so you have your Bible, the circle, all the proclamation in there. John is saying, we're not ashamed of this. There is life. There is a way. God showed up and said, if you want to be right with me, this is how you can do it. This is how. These are the terms of salvation. And he made it really, really easy. Believe. And really, really hard. You got to die to yourself. But he at least told us the way that it's supposed to be, right? And he said, if you're my disciple, you're going to fall. You're going to do what I do. If you love me, you're going to obey my commands. If you, if you care for people, you're going to actually care for them, not just in word, but through your action. He teaches us a whole new way of living, doesn't he? But it starts with, is he really God? Well, in verse 3, it says, we proclaim to you again. He's not ashamed of this. It's the power of God, the gospel, the power of God to save us, so that you may also have fellowship with us. You know, Christians have gotten a bad rap in media. Some of it we deserved, but I think a lot of it has been 
like movies, TVs, all that kind of stuff, they really like to show us as these hypocritical, narrow-minded, bigoted people, right? That's kind of the, the MO. If you're a Christian, you're an idiot, you're, uh, you're bad, you know, ultimately the world would probably be better without you, right? You're, you're simplistic, you believe in a spaghetti monster or whatever they want to teach, right? That's, I'll tell you, if, if, if you've really come to Christ and you've experienced that, that it, just that devastating realization of how sinful you are, Man, you didn't deserve this. That humiliating place that I can't save me. And I'm never going to be good enough, and I've tried. If you've come to that place at the cross and you say, God, I've got to die to this self because this self, there's no life in it. If you've come to a place where you recognize the holiness of God and his righteousness and his, his, his authority, he has the right to say what's right and wrong, not me, and then I had the audacity to tell him he didn't, when you've come to a place in, in your faith where you, when you really consider and, and look at Scripture and truth and, and, and stare God in the face and recognize how far short you fall, which is where all Christians begin, there is no place for being arrogant. There is no place for being conceited to look down our nose at other people and say, I'm more righteous. I know I'm not more righteous than you. I mean, that's why I'm here. I am unworthy, but, God, but I am so loved. When you have experienced the grace of God, you cannot continue to live a life of judgment against other people because you recognize the judgment that you deserve. Instead, when you're a Christian, you experience the grace of God who in spite of who I was, he still saw me and loved me and gave me grace. You're a kind of person that doesn't give up on anybody. God didn't give up on me. He's not going to give up on you. Peter looked at Jesus through a window and did not even knew him on the night that Christ was killed. And Jesus showed up and made him breakfast and said, feed my sheep. That's the kind of Lord we serve. You can't have that kind of experience with God and walk away as somebody who is judgmental and horrible and bigoted. You become a person that is so filled with grace because you have been graced. You have love because you have been loved. That's why we can forgive, because we have been forgiven. And that's what he says, we've seen and heard, so you can have fellowship. John was writing this not just to the, the people in the church that agreed with him. He was writing this to the people in the church that were spreading falsehoods, that were, that were killing people's souls. There's a love in the kingdom. There was, there was this, com, this compulsion on the inside. It's if God let me in and swing the gates wide, let everybody come. Everybody should know this. But you have to be touched by grace first. You can't get to the other side. You can't get to the resurrection unless you face the death. Until you come to a point and say, you know what? I'm not good enough. And I have to die to myself so I can live in Christ. But you get there and it sets you free. Totally sets you free. See, the gospel speaks out of authority, out of experience. John saw Jesus. Listen to him. Sat at his feet. I've experienced God's grace. It is an authoritative speech. I, the reason that I live my life the way I do is not because I want to follow some religious norm. It's because I've experienced God in my own life too. And I have a testimony. 
and I will proclaim it to you, that God can save anybody, even arrogant little kids, right? God can save anybody, and he's saving people today. And I tell you so that you can have fellowship with me. Now that you feel bad, so that you can enjoy this too. That's the heart. And fellowship in, 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 is this Greek word called koinonia. And koinonia is an amazing word. Because we talk about fellowship as churches, and it's kind of a churchy word. And we think about like, oh, we're kind of buddy buddies. But that's not it. I mean, it's partly there, but koinonia is like, we are integrated. Think about when you smash your thumb with a hammer. Right? There, bam! Isn't that a wonderful thought? Like, ah! Right? Your whole body hurts, doesn't it? You're like, bam, my thumb really hurts, but every other part's like, oh, right? Right, you face winces, all of that, because you're connected. One part suffers, the whole part suffers. And some of you all like, like massages. I don't understand why, but I know some of you do. And what I hear from you guys that like massages, like when you're getting a massage, even though your back and your shoulders might be the ones that are rubbed, like the rest of your body relaxes. It's like, oh. One part celebrates, the whole body celebrates. Koinonia. Jesus calls us his body. There's a depth to our fellowship. It's so much more than we like the same foods and that we listen to the same music and we worship the same way, right? It's so much more than our preferences. We are connected into the body of Christ. And when one part suffers, the whole body suffers, which is why us as a church, when we look in our community in Estes, we are compelled to, to serve our neighbors, but also when we look around the world and we see people being treated like the deletes, the body hurts and the body responds. You know, the truth of this, the why we can do that is because Jesus is real. If Jesus wasn't real, then there is no body of Christ, is there? Which is why John starts the very first four verses on saying this is real. Everything relies on this. Either Jesus actually is real or he is not. And John says, I was there, I saw him, he is real. You can trust him. And why does he write this then? Well, look at verse 4, which was going to be our memory verse because it's short, but I like verse 3 better. We write this to make our joy complete. Joy is so much more than happiness. And I know that you've heard probably lots of pastors talk about this. Happiness comes and go by circumstances. Joy is something that exists in the indwelling part of who you are. Happiness says, I had a good day, I'm, it's good, but then if I get pulled over and the police on the way home, also I'm not happy anymore. Joy says this, no matter what happens in this life, no matter tickets or whatever I get, I'm still going to the kingdom. Right? Joy is what kept me when I was an electrician and I was crawling through crawl spaces with spiders around me saying, if they kill me, I still go to heaven. Right? That's joy. Joy is the, is the hope that God can save anybody. Joy is, is, the, is the knowledge that God forgives and forgives still. Joy is the fact that he's never going to abandon me. He will never forsake me. Joy is hope that goes beyond the fact that we're going to suffer in this life because Jesus never promised it was going to be easy once we were disciples. In fact, he promised it would be hard. He didn't promise it would be painless. In fact, he promised it would be painful. But he says this, joy says, but hold on because the better part's coming. Joy. The gospel literally is good news. That's what it means. And so he says, listen, I want to have joy. I cannot have joy if you are outside fellowship. And as Christians, we look, Christians, we have been at Estes Park for 20 years as a church. And there are so many more people who live in this valley, not because they reject God because they want to reject God. They reject God because they have no idea who he is. They're believing wrong things about him. And I cannot be okay in my spirit. If God can forgive me, then he can forgive them. If I'm able to live in light, then why not them? If I'm able to live in love, why not them? And he says, John, this great apostle who lived his life with Jesus, said his joy was, must still be incomplete yet. But he writes so that it would be complete so that every one of God's children can come home. Jesus said this in John 
well-known scripture, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's why Jesus came. Not to condemn the world. In fact, he goes on and says, I did not... God not sent his son to the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And he goes on to say, basically, the world's already condemned. We're already filled with sin. He came to save. Our joy comes with Christ's joy. He came to save. He came to redeem people. He came to redeem society and in our hearts and our lives. He came to change us from the inside out. Our joy compels us to go. And so we have this. What are our takeaways then? The first four verses... And as you read 1 John, I think there's some things that are important for us to take away. I think the first one is this, is that Jesus is God. I'm not kidding. Like, if you, if you want to be in Christ, Christian doctrine teaches us very clearly that Jesus is God and it's not hearsay. God showed up and he did things only God can do. If you want to read about them, read about the Gospels, right? First-hand accounts. What did God do? When Jesus showed up, he proved that he's God. I think the best evidence that he's God is that he was murdered, right? He was executed. And then after three days, he raises himself back to life. Try doing that. That's good evidence, right? He is God. He has God the Father himself show up two times in his life saying, this is my son. He has the Holy Spirit in him. He does things that only God could do. He has power over nature, power over demons, power over sickness. He has power over natural things. He can feed people with a few fish and a bunch of loaves with a few loaves of bread. He can do things only God can do. He fulfills prophecy, over 300 of them. Scripture testifies to him. But Jesus is God, and we have to start there because if he's not God, then we need to stop right there and just say, well, do I like what he has to say? And so maybe I'll listen to it. But if he's God, then he has the power to save me. Second thing we need to recognize, and this is a takeaway that Jesus is man, which means God loves us enough to become one of us. Now, as a little kid, I had a, had a dog, and uh, I loved my dog, but there's no way, if I had the opportunity, would I become a dog, because I saw what dogs did, right? They lick themselves. I don't love dogs that much. But God loved us to become one of us, and to face all of our indignities, and all of our suffering, and all of our temptation. And he didn't need to. He became one of us, not just like one of us, but one of us so that he could die as one of us. Life himself died so that we could have life. And because Jesus is a man, we have no doubt that God is a God of love. When I wondered, when I went through that really dark time in the soul a few years ago when everything was falling apart and you guys got to go through it with me and it was just like, God, you know what held me to it is when I was at that question, I said, you know, the God of the Bible seems very different than the God of my experience right now. What held me to the God of Scripture and what held me to faith was this, is I know that Jesus died and he rose again. That's, I'd have to throw my brain out. The, the historical evidence and everything is just too solid for that. So if God showed up and died for me and rose again, it means that God loves me. He loves me far more than I could ever imagine. If he loved me that much, he wasn't going to abandon me now. And so I kept with him until the God of my experience matched the God of my faith again. Jesus is man. He understands. The last thing I have to get is that Jesus is real. God became flesh. He lived. God is a God of time and history. He created time and history, didn't he? And he shows up in time and history. And so we expect him to be real today, not just in our philosophy or our teachings, but actually in our lives. God is real. So what do you do with these things? Well, I think we'd start with by saying the truth of these realities is this. The first one is that, that, uh, that this becomes the foundation of our faith, doesn't it? Nothing else really happens until we get this. And if you're stuck there, I would love to talk with you. 
Because I was there for a long time. Until I had that settled, I couldn't take those next steps. That's where the faith begins. But with those, this is where our faith has to go, is then Jesus has to be our salvation. If Jesus is God and he is man and he said, did what he said that he did, right? Salvation is in him and him alone. Even he said it. And we have to look to him. We need to be saved by grace through faith. And we have to walk in that faith. But also, our fellowship has to be based on this. Because church is not about, hey, what's got the best pastor or the best donuts, right? It's got to be about, we have the best God. And he calls us together. And our faith calls us together. And God said, I didn't just call you the greatest commandment, love God with everything. How do we show that? By loving one another. You can't do that if you're not in fellowship. So Jesus is our Lord. This is why we're here. And then also that Jesus is real lets us know that this is our testimony. Your testimony is not made up. It's not some crazy spaghetti monster that's out there. We're just wishful thinking, maybe. No, God showed up in history. He did. He died. He rose again so you could live. And that faith can be made known in your own life. And you're looking at a lot of people that have experienced that in their own lives and have their own testimony, how God helped them. Well, God answered prayers, right? How God is real. So our, we have a true faith. And if we have a true faith, then we have to have faith in truth. And this is truth. And if this is who Jesus really is, then we have to have the boldness to follow him wherever he leads. So let me invite you then on some next steps in that journey. If you take out your connection card, I've got some, some ideas on the back side there. So these are the next week I commit to. These are just next steps. Next steps on your journey of faith. Some things that maybe you can do to start applying some of this into your life in practical ways. On the back there, you'll notice the first one is to memorize 1 John 1, 3. What a great thing to set God's scripture into your heart and life, right? To really begin meditating and thinking about what God wants. We proclaim to you what we've seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. Maybe for you, it's, it's realizing that your faith needs to be more than just an intellectual game, but it's got to be real. Maybe it's recognize that there's a proclamation that it's too good to keep to yourself. But let God's work do its, his word do its work in your life. And maybe that's what you, mem- you do this week is, is you memorize 1 John 1, 3. Or maybe what you do is you read 1 John. 1 John is a letter. All letters are meant to be read from start to finish, right? So we don't want to take it out of context before we preach the whole thing. Read it. It's not long. It's a letter. And go through and just read it this week. Or maybe what you do is maybe you pray for Easter. Why? You know, Easter is coming up in a month. And it is the best opportunity that we have to share God's love with our community. More people who have no idea who Jesus is are more apt to come to church on Easter than anywhere else. And don't just pray that people come to our church. Pray that people come to the churches in Estes, the ones that preach the gospel, that receive the Bible as the inspired word of God, right? Wouldn't it be awesome if God just filled the, the, the places of worship, right, with, with, with people and so that the light can be preached? And I meet with these other pastors every week. We pray together, right? We want to see the gospel spread. So maybe that's where you begin as you start praying, even to yourself. Who is it that you need to proclaim to? Who is it that you're going to invite? Or maybe you'd be praying for me or for the church and for those things. Maybe you start praying for Easter. Or how about this? You need to attend the next three weeks. We're going to go through 1 John. You want to be here for this passage? You want to have a test of faith, making sure you're not duped, right? You want to see what God has to say? How do we test? How do we know we have a legit faith? What does it mean to practice it? Show up the next three weeks. We're going to be talking about it. And you'll see, like I was today, he doesn't pull any punches, does he? God tells us truth because we need to hear it, because he loves us. And so I encourage you to be there if this is your commitment. Let me know if you have another commitment. Maybe the Holy Spirit speaking in your heart saying, you need to do this week. Listen to the Holy Spirit. Obey him. Tell me what you're doing so I can pray for you and support you as your pastor. If you have a prayer request, opportunity, write that down. We do pray every week. And we have seen God do pretty awesome miracles. 
right? And we've also seen God work in, in lives. It's, it's an amazing thing. So write it down. Let us pray. The more specific the prayer, the more specific the answers. And so write it down. It's not that God always just says yes, but sometimes but he always works through prayers, doesn't he? So write it down. Let us pray with you. And then here in a minute, we're going to take our offering. We take our offering. Please take this connection card. Put it in the offering basket as it's passed, and along with your tithes and your gifts. I'm going to pray, and then our worship team is going to close us out, and then I invite you to stay for our fellowship meal. That would be awesome um, right after that. So um, please join me as we pray. Father God, thank you for your love, for your kindness, for your goodness, for the fact that you are real is awesome. Lord, make our faith real. Help this church to be, to be centered on truth but in a right way, not in a truth that leads to arrogance or judgmentalism, but, Father, a truth that leads to love and compassion and mercy, acts of service and fellowship. God, a a way of living life of purpose in this world, a a joy that cannot be taken away. Father, let your truth be real in us. Father, for the commitments we make today, help us to keep those in a way that drive us closer to you. Wherever we are on our journey in faith, Father, help us to take that next step boldly. Protect us from the enemy, Father. But we also want to pray, too, from, for uh, our offerings. Lord, thank you for giving us uh, what we need and then, Father, giving us an opportunity to, to invest in your kingdom. May you bless it by growing your love in this community, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.